0: Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, Change Ignites Growth, Seven Ways to Use Change as an Opportunity. In it, you'll discover the benefits of change, how you can use it as a catalyst for improvement, and how you can help your team embrace it. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod two nine eight. We're getting close to that milestone episode. This is Elizabeth Frederick. And today I am very excited about our guest. Um, He is the founder and a leadership coach at fully integrated leadership. And that provides high performance training and coaching for leaders. His background is interesting. It's in running development at nonprofits, and um, he's actually raised over half a billion dollars over the course of his career. So that's very applicable, obviously, to selling. Um, And one of the nonprofits he worked at is something I'm really um, connected to and passionate about, which is the Nature Conservancy. He is a prolific speaker, and he hosts a podcast of his own called the Fully Integrated Leadership Podcast, and he's based in beautiful Brunswick, Maine. So we are so glad to have you here, David Daniel.
1: Elizabeth, thanks so much. It's great to be with you.
0: I'm just so glad you can join me. We've, we've worked together um, for a little while, and, and I know we've spoken a few times, and um, I know our audience is going to really benefit from, from hearing from your perspective. Um, but before we jump into the bulk of our conversation, I just gave the, the high-level bullets of your resume, but that's not who you are as a person. So I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners, maybe talk a bit about um, the journey that you've been on to get to where you are today and where you developed the passion. For what it is that you're doing.
1: Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. I appreciate it and uh, hope you all are faring well, all of you out there, as we continue to deal with the COVID pandemic. Um, so I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I was raised in a very philanthropic family. My grandparents used to talk about paying your civic rent. Uh, so mm. Our heart at work in a community is is uh, is really how we make our mark in the world. So that was instilled in me very early on. Uh, also, a a love of psychology and understanding, really wanting to understand some of the bigger questions in life, like why are we here, why am I here, um, what who are we really, uh, what's the meaning that we're trying to to get out of life. So I've I've always been intensely interested in these kinds of questions. Um, and so that's one stream I think is important for people to understand is, is that I'm just driven by some of these deeper philosophical questions and have mm. been on a journey throughout my life. Um, you mentioned the piece about uh, the Nature Conservancy and working in nonprofit organizations. Um, so I won't go into too much more detail about that other than to say I very much connect with uh, salespeople out there that are out there talking with people about um you know, a subject that is oftentimes taboo in our society, which is money. Um, so I'm, I've am i spent a lot of time thinking about relationship to money, talking with people about money, the psychology around it. Um, I think another piece that's important in the journey is that for about a decade, I was a high-performance triathlete um, uh-huh. and became a USA Triathlon certified coach, training some of the most elite athletes in the world to uh, to prepare them for Ironman distance races, so a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, and a marathon. And in my own training preparation, I developed what I called a fully integrated approach to training, which is you don't just train the body. You train the body, you train the mind, you train the spirit. Because by the time you get to the elite levels of the sport, everybody pretty much has the same physical abilities. Mm. What sets them apart is their thinking, their mindset um, their understanding of themselves, their ability to visualize. Uh, and so I was able to develop this program that was based in science, but also some ancient wisdom traditions that helped my athletes have tremendous, um, results, not only in their race, but in their life. So that's a, that's an important stream here. Um, and where that morphed into leadership coaching for me is it, it was two pieces. One is I was dealing with a tremendous amount of overwhelm in my job at the nature conservancy. Um, we were, it is the largest environmental nonprofit in the world, trying mm-hmm. to solve some of the most complex challenges facing people in nature. Um, it's working on really long-term solutions to things like climate change, um, overfishing in the oceans, you know, the, the, the ability to balance energy use with, uh, with environmental demands. So just lots of really big, complex questions that we were trying to wrestle with. And I found myself in over my head as a leader. Um, And so I put myself through a a fairly intense learning journey, a leadership development program, where I learned about something we'll talk about in just a minute, which is working in complexity. Um, But on the other side of that, I also noticed that a lot of the people that I worked with who were triathletes were also executives. Um, Triathlon is not a sport that people make a lot of money in, but it's a sport that attracts high achieving people. Um, And so I started to see a lot of parallels between training triathletes to get ready for races with training leaders to get ready for the race they're trying to run as a leader. Um, And so I instilled that same training process that I put myself through the fully integrated approach to training a triathlete. I started to say, well, what if I trained myself to be a better leader in the face of complexity and unpredictability? Um, And so That's just a little bit of the the background about my work. The other thing I would mention is um, we live on about seven acres here in Maine. Uh, My wife, Anne, and our 10-year-old son, Colden. And um, there's a slogan in Maine that it's the way life should be. And we really feel that way. So I I live my life very much, uh, as Thoreau described it, as living with intention or living deliberately. um, And really enjoy the solitude and also just the, uh, the access to nature that we have here in Maine. So that's just a little bit about me.
0: Absolutely. I, I love that, um, that clear path that you can see through your experiences, um, from the values that you kind of absorbed in your childhood, um, through the experiences you had both on the personal side as a triathlete and on the professional side, um, you know, in developing, um, uh, you know, growth with with a nonprofit and understanding um, the challenges that you face there, and you know, facing some of the the world's biggest problems that the organization is trying to solve, um, that really, I'm sure, taught you the value of um, fully integrated leadership. So. You touched on fully integrated training and, um, you know, and being a fully integrated triathlete um, and your company is about fully integrated leadership. So what does that mean to you on a, on a business leadership side?
1: Yeah. And, and just just real quick on the piece about uh, it's nice that I can see the the, the the kind of clarity that my life unfolded to this place. I think that's probably true for many of us. It, mm-hmm. it always looks clear when we look backwards uh, and. but so I'm sure your, your listeners can connect with that. Um, The fully integrated leadership. Yeah, it's, it's based in three core beliefs. Mm -hmm. Uh, First belief is that the world that leaders face is complex and unpredictable, and it's only growing in complexity and unpredictability. So that's belief number one. Um, And we can go into some detail about what that looks like in just a moment. We'll, we'll talk about that. Um, The second belief is our minds, our conventional minds, the ones that have evolved uh, to where we are today, those minds are not well-suited for complexity and unpredictability. Hmm. Our, mind, our mind is basically a giant survival organ that is just trying to survive whatever's happening, and it creates a mess when we bring conventional thinking to uh, complex situations, and we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like. And then the third belief is our minds can be retrained to thrive in complexity But it takes rigorous practice and discipline and this is where the the piece around triathlon training comes in we really can train ourselves to think and act differently in the face of complexity but it only happens when we retrain the brain through a process called neuroplasticity which is where we try new things and we reflect on our experience and we actually grow new neural pathways so that it's almost like rewiring a computer to operate differently than what our conventional minds want to do so The fully integrated leadership program is really about helping leaders understand where are they on that journey. What are they good at as it comes to complexity and and unpredictability? Mm -hmm. Where do they have areas to develop? And then we put them in the gym and we really train them to think and act differently in the face of these uh, these environments they find themselves in.
0: Absolutely, Um, that makes so much sense. And I think um, probably the idea that we're all living in a complex and unpredictable world. Everybody was likely aware of that on some level. Um, let's say, you know, 14 months ago. <laughs> but yeah. if, if it hasn't been put into stark relief over the last year or so, um, I think you are in a very privileged place. You know, there are some organizations that have just been humming along uh, over the course of the last year, but most of us have experienced some extra complexity, some extra uncertainty, unpredictability. And um, we've definitely seen the stress points uh, get get a lot more pressure over the last year
1: yes i agree i i think maybe there are organizations out there that are somewhat immune to this or have grown through it but i don't think any individual out there who is living on the planet right now can say that they haven't been dealing with some sense of mm-hmm. unpredictability uncertainty uh, ambiguity uh just thinking about all the different all the different uh guidelines that have come out and lack of clarity about what we should and shouldn't be doing we're all dealing with it, with this pandemic in significant ways, which is interesting because it creates this um, kind of global frenzy or global mm-hmm. worry. But it's also a time I see that our planet is coming together because when can you really say that the entire planet has been focused on the same thing at the same time? Definitely. Uh, and it's so it is an opportunity for us as well to, to learn about Our ability to come together as human beings and collaborate with one another when we're facing a, a, I don't even want to call it a common enemy because I don't like to think of COVID as an enemy, Uh, but when we're facing a, a, a common situation together. So it's actually been interesting to watch.
0: Definitely. And I don't want to go down this rabbit trail too long, but I just can't help but think of the fact that, um, you know, we touched on climate change and um, overfishing and all the issues that, that happen with the ocean. Um, and if we can take some of this cooperation that the world has been able to develop over COVID um, and translate it to those less, um, less urgent in terms of their immediate impact, but significantly more important problems on an ongoing basis. I think this could really be the beginning of something um, that we could see a great silver lining to the COVID, um, the COVID pandemic and, and that cooperation that it's created.
1: Yeah, that's the hope is that there's been enough time and enough learning through this that will leverage real change and shifts in the way that we operate. But we'll we'll see, time will tell. That's that's kind of the way that societies evolve over time is there's a mm-hmm. period of crisis that leads that, that kind of just dist- deconstructs the way things were done before. And then there's a period of creation, what's wanting to be created out of that destruction. And then what's wanting to be sustained. I mean, I, I come from the city of Atlanta, which is the city that rose from the ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just instilled in us, this almost hero's journey of we're going to go through some crisis it's going to separate us from the way that we currently do things we're going to be initiated in a new way of thinking and then we're going to sustain that um going forward so it'll be interesting to see what is sustained what's de- what's created out of this
0: definitely. So, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but that does lead into what I wanted to talk about next. Um, and we've used some of these terms already, but I know that you commonly use um the concept of VUCA, which is volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Um and that can be a good summary of all of these um feelings and and stressors that we're experiencing. So, if you um as an individual, you know, I'm sure people kind of naturally can understand how they um, how they are experiencing that, but there are, are there some specific signs that an organization is experiencing um, the impacts of VUCA or is um, you know not reacting well to it. What are the what are the symptoms that organizations and leaders might see?
1: Yeah, so first, I think just a couple of a brief history of VUCA. So VUCA was mm-hmm. originally coined by the U.S. military. Back in the 1990s, when they recognized that their traditional tactics were not working against global terror cells, it, the, the enemy had changed its tactics and they described the enemy as VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And from that, the business world started to take it on and said, wait a second, this is describing our new normal. This is our reality that we're facing right now. And uh, and then people in general started to say, you know what, This this feels like life. Um, so that's just a little bit of a history of VUCA and to bring these concepts home a little bit as well. So volatility, um, when we talk about volatility, um, if you were to go back a hundred years and this is research that's been done, if you go back a hundred years, information on the planet doubled about every century. Mm -hmm. Um, and then by about the, about world war II, it was doubling every quarter of a century because of the ability to communicate and connect with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, today, that is an, it's an astounding statistic that information is estimated to double on the planet every 12 hours. Wow. Because of our connection with one another, because we all have internet access, we all have cell phones, we have information flying around. If you go to bed knowing everything about a topic, you wake up tomorrow and you know half
0: mm-hmm. because
1: of all that has changed. So the change that we, that this creates tremendous amounts of volatility, tremendous amounts of change that we can all feel, um, which then leads to uncertainty. Uncertainty is when it's difficult for us to use the past as a predictor of the future. Because things are changing so rapidly, it's hard for us to say, well, this happened yesterday, so it must be happening again tomorrow because the conditions have changed. And that is very difficult for our minds because our minds are, basically giant validation-seeking machines. Mm -hmm. They validate their story of of the world. Complexity, when we get to the C in VUCA, complexity is about the difficulty of being able to link cause and effect relationships. It's hard to know why something is happening. What caused this to happen? And that is, again, very difficult for our minds because we come from the, 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 the savannas of East Africa where not being able to understand what was causing the bushes to rustle in front of us might lead to us being eaten by a tiger. So our brain is very attuned to wanting to see cause-effect relationships and even creating them. And then we get to ambiguity. In ambiguity, we're dealing with a lot of unknown unknowns uh, and, and difficulty making sense of why something is happening or what the meaning of something is. So VUCA, when we bring it to life, to, to really answer your question of what does it look like, what, what's happening in an organization, um, what we see happening in organizations is people trying to do as much as they can as quickly as they can. That's one mm-hmm. of the signs we're in a VUCA situation. Um, the, the, the Irish poet David White says that the typical response to increased complexity is increased velocity. So if you're in an organization where it feels like, gosh, we just keep going pedal to the metal all the time, doing things, and we never seem to step back and ask ourselves why we're doing it, that's a good sign that you're in a VUCA environment. Um, The other thing that we see people doing is trying to throw short-term solutions at things. So there's a lot of problem-solving mindset that's happening, and we keep having problems or challenges come up over and over and over again. So if you have problems or patterns that keep arising, it's highly likely that you're in a VUCA situation and you're bringing a conventional thought process to it. When we're working in complexity, we're no longer solving problems, we're managing dilemmas. Mm. So that's a big mindset shift to move from, I'm gonna solve this problem to I'm gonna manage my way through this process, recognizing it's gonna keep changing. So that's another thing that's happening or another symptom that we would see in an organization. Another is blame and us versus them thinking. We get a lot of siloization that happens mm-hmm. when we're in focus situations and we've got people approaching organizations like they're a machine. And if something's not working, we need to change out the cog in the machine and that's what's going to fix it. And what we want to shift our mindset into is rather than the us versus them thinking, we really want to improve the relationship between the parts within the organization. And we really want to look at Rather than us versus them, we're all in this together and we're not in a blame situation. So those are just some of the some of the things that we would see in VUCA, Um, how it lands more specifically. um, Mm -hmm. Leaders are being asked to make decisions with tremendous amounts of information, lots of perspectives, and they get an analysis paralysis about being able to make decisions or they make rash decisions without really thinking it through. So decision making becomes a huge issue. In a in a VUCA environment, um, collaborating with one another becomes a huge issue within a VUCA environment. How is it that we think about collaboration? Um, so we'll talk more about it, but that's l- let me pause there and see what that brings up for you.
0: Oh, absolutely! I think um, everything that you were sharing, I could think of where I might have experienced that um, in our organization, or um, I've seen a client in that situation. And as, as you explain it, it just makes total logical sense, right? In the moment, it feels like um, you're making the perfectly logical uh, decision and you're, you're just addressing things as makes sense. But then um, when you apply this framework, you understand that the way we're naturally responding to situations is actually causing them to be worse. And I think an example that a lot of us um, might've heard about, over the last few years, is um, the stress response, and I know the example that that you hear um, is, you know, we we react when we're experiencing stress over um, work that's overdue. Just our physical body reacts as if we're being chased by a lion, and mm-hmm. the health impacts of our our brains and bodies' natural reaction to the stress that we're under is completely out of. Alignment with the kinds of stress that we're experiencing now. And so you have people who have all these serious health impacts, because they're living in a VUCA world, and their bodies are overcompensating for it by, you know, driving up the adrenaline and the cortisol, and they've got, um, you know, problems with with their diet and their their physical, um, you know, health impacts and psychological impacts and just all of these other things. And it's because, as you said, our, our bodies, our brains were not adapted for the world that we're living in. And um, that's that's just such a such a powerful concept. And I think a lot of us as leaders haven't really thought about um, how do we need to change to address that? And how can we help guide our teams and our organizations um, to be better adapted to the world that we live in today?
1: I think that's so well said, and, and and again, this is where the triathlon piece comes in. the 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 big light bulb that went off for me, Elizabeth, was when I realized. So let's let's just just some basic triathlon terminology here, and I'm, I'm sure many of your your listeners are familiar with this. But if we start with a sprint triathlon, which is uh, you know a, about a 500 yard swim, a 13 mile bike, and a 5k run. You really just need a pair of goggles, a bike, and some running shoes, and you can go do the race. You step up to the next level of, the, of racing. Now you're at the Olympic distance, and so you're about a mile swim, a 25-mile bike, and a 6K run. Or, uh, sorry, 10K run, so about a 6-mile run. You can't just do what you did for the sprint race more in order to train for mm-hmm. the Olympic race. That's, I mean, you can. But that doesn't really, it's not really addressing the, the added complexity of being out in a race for three hours, two to three hours, dealing with hydration, dealing with wind conditions. There's just way more VUCA as you move up in races. You move up to the half Ironman, now you're out there for five, six, seven, eight hours. Ironman, now you're out there for anywhere between 10 and 16 hours. So you're just dealing with increasing levels of complexity and uncertainty. And the same is true in leadership. So what I found is that we are bringing a kind of 5K mindset to an Ironman of leadership. We're not learning new skills. We're not developing new ways of thinking and being. So what we do is we just train like we're training for a sprint race, but we just we just kind of quintuple it to get ready for the longer races. But we're still bringing the same thinking. We're still bringing the same actions to it. And that's where we start to see the mismatch. That's where we start to see the overwhelm. The anxiety statistics that are in our society right now are, are um, incredible. The unhappiness rates that we're seeing in our society are incredible. And I think it's because we have people that are uh, not recognizing how fast the conditions are changing and how much that's outpacing and outmatching our thinking and our behavior.
0: That is... Um... That's such an excellent analogy because, you know, I'm not an athlete at all, at all, at all. And so, you know, I could probably run a 5k. I would be very, very, very sore afterwards. And I would definitely not run the whole time, but I could make it 5k. Um, And to think of, you know, it it is not quintupling it to try to do um, five times that, I mean, it's something I would physically not be able to do. I would be in the hospital. So, um, you know, So often as leaders, we think, okay, what I've been doing isn't working, so I should do more of it, and I should do it harder, I should do it more, instead of thinking it's a completely different skill set, a completely different kind of behaving of being um, to be successful in these times. So I, I think you've mentioned a few of the common patterns um, that people fall into, the common natural responses. You mentioned um, you know, blame and silos. You, you mentioned um, decision fatigue and, and the inability to kind of make decisions. But are there other kind of patterns of behavior that um, that you've noticed people naturally fall into that are especially kind of maladaptive to the VUCA environment?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's many, and I'm sure people out there, I mean, just, just think about when you come up against uncertainty, when you come up against stress, how is it that you tend to handle it? And um, again, what our, what our brain tends to want to do is go into self-protection. Uh, it wants to to jump quickly to, like I said before, a little bit to blame. Um, but there's, there's, three kind of typical patterns that we see that people go into when they're facing a VUCA situation. The first is they go into what we call very complying behavior. So um, they're mostly concerned about being liked by their colleagues. And as a leader, if your first instinct is to be liked by your colleagues, you're going to have a really hard time in a VUCA environment. Mm -hmm. Because um, that desire to please, it's very natural evolutionarily for us because if we got rejected from our tribe, it was, it meant probably sure death for us. Um, So the first reaction we see in VUCA is people jumping to being very compliant and that makes them um, maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit of a weaker leader in the face of it. When, when sometimes being in VUCA, we just want to try things and move things forward. Mm -hmm. So that's one reaction or one pattern that we see. The second reaction that we see is leaders that go very distant. So they distance themselves Mm -hmm. in the face of stress. They become the lone ranger or the hero on the white horse
0: Mm -hmm. that
1: wants to, rather than collaborate, which is the natural move, what's the move we want to see in VUCA. We want to see people collaborating and drawing out diverse perspectives. What we'll see instead is leaders who really go out and become the lone ranger. And they become quite arrogant in the face of VUCA and think that they can take it on themselves and vanquish the dragon so that's a pattern that we see a lot in leadership. And the third one is controlling. Uh, the leaders become quite controlling in the face of VUCA because when we're facing uncertainty, we just wanna grab a hold of whatever we can control. And just to bring this home to, to COVID again, imagine back to a year ago when we were first dealing with this, what was it that everybody wanted to go out and buy? They wanted to go buy toilet paper and paper towels, right? Yep. So, a lot of people laughed about that and they were like, well, that's kind of curious, but why were they doing that? Because in the face of unpredictability, it was something we could control. And so we were seeking control of the situation in some way. And we see leaders doing that in the face of VUCA situations is they'll grasp for control of the situation. They'll become very micromanaging uh, and they will quell creativity in their team because they want everything to be very predictable. And if you do that, that's a mismatch from the conditions that we're actually operating in. Because, like I said before, if things are changing as fast as they're changing, you can't use the past as a predictor of the future. Being controlling is the absolute antidote to what we want leaders to be doing in uh, in the face of VUCA.
0: Definitely, and I love that example that you provided of toilet paper and paper towels because, well, they are essential. I mean, if you've ever not had toilet paper in your house, you, you probably recognize its value, but it is. It is small and it just, you know, you talk about toilet paper and it seems silly. And so often um, when you get into that controlling mindset, you start focusing on the smallest little details because they're the easiest things to control. I cannot help but think of a company. um, We were talking to somebody and they mentioned that the the CEO of the company was very concerned about the font and font size of every email that they sent. And it's just really, (laughs) in this world, that's the most important thing. And yet, if you can hold people accountable to that, and you have a very clear, you used the font or you didn't use the font, it it feels comforting in some way to have that level of control, even though the world is going to chaos around you, and yet your font is correct. And so... um, I can see how, you know, I'm sure, again, we've all experienced either for ourselves or, um, or we've seen um, people fall into those three patterns and they seem to make sense in the moment. But um, you, you very clearly explained why they really don't fit the situation that we're encountering. Yes. And so I'd love to hear from you. So we just talked about the, the negative patterns or the maladaptive patterns that people can fall into. Are there better patterns? Should we be replacing these with different patterns? Is it about habits? What would you say are the better ways to respond to this VUCA environment?
1: Yeah, so um, one, of the, one of the frameworks that's really helpful in understanding, because sometimes this idea of complexity in VUCA can sound a little theoretical, um, and, and I recognize that and so really want to want to bring this home for people. Um, there's a framework called the Kinevin framework. Um, that's C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. Um, Kinevin is a Welsh word that means realms or, or spaces. And the Kinevin framework helps us to understand as leaders, what type of situation or environment are we operating in and what's the correct or appropriate move or action within that realm? So... Yeah. The first realm in the Kinevan framework is the simple realm. And in the simple realm, things are very predictable. Uh, cause-effect relationships are known. Uh, it's things like in your organization, how is it that you take customer orders? That That's a simple system, right? If something goes wrong with it, then you know exactly what you need to do to fix it. The analogy that I use with this is it's like a car key. A car key has one function. It goes in the ignition, you turn it, and it turns the car on. Um, So that's a simple system. That's the simple realm. The second realm is the complicated realm. Now we're talking about a place where uh, rather than the key to the car, it's the, what if the car starts making a, a knocking noise in the engine? Well, a key can't fix that problem. You need to have experts come together and analyze the engine and analyze the car and understand what is it that we need to do to fix this. So there's lots of complicated problems that we're dealing with within our organizations that really are the realm of experts to come together and analyze it and figure out what's the right thing to do. When we step into the third realm, this is where we're in complexity. The third realm of the Kinevin framework is the complex realm. And in this space, now we're out of the car or we're driving in the car, but we're in a traffic jam. Well, you don't want experts to come together and analyze the traffic jam because I don't know about you all, but Every time there's a traffic issue that we're dealing with here in Maine, which yes, we do deal with traffic issues because we're vacation land. So every summer when the, when the roads back up, a group of experts come together and they look at what they need to do and they put a traffic light in and what happens? Well, the traffic usually gets worse. Mm-hmm. So in complexity, the move is now moving out of the realm of experts analyzing and it's actually to set up what we call safe to fail experiments. You have to probe the system to see what works and what doesn't. That's a very different way of thinking than what we're dealing with in the complicated realm. So we want to try out different things. We want to test it. We want to inquire into the system and see what it, what its response is. And then in the fourth realm, it's the, the realm of crisis and in the realm of crisis, rather than even probing, we just want to act quickly and then iterate. So we're going to spend some time now what I spend a lot of time with my clients on is the big mistake that I see is we bring complicated mindset to complex challenges. Mm. So most of what you're dealing with at work is complex. That's the first thing. You just have to own that. Um, and as a leadership team, the Kenevan framework can be incredibly helpful to say what are the complicated things we're dealing with but where are we trying to bring analysis and expertise, to something where, you know what, what we need to just go do is try a bunch of stuff. We need to set up some experiments and test and collaborate and communicate through that to see what's working and what's not and keep iterating. Our mind wants to create a linear process out of everything. And in complexity, thinking in a linear way and expecting A to lead to B to C to D is actually gonna really get in our way. It's gonna cause a lot of issues. So. We want to be more in experimentation mode as a team and as a group. So that's a big one for us is being able to distinguish when am I uncomplicated, when am I complex and what's the right move based on that. So um, helping people to get more comfortable with failure, helping people to see that learning is actually a really positive outcome rather than believing that we have to map out success from the beginning and then we have to follow that linear process. So helping people to become comfortable, helping yourself to become comfortable with just trying things, being okay with that failure piece, being okay with learning. Those are big. Um, So let me me pause there and see what that brings up for you, Elizabeth.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think um, as you described those different realms, I think probably most of us naturally feel like we're about one level up from where we are, right? So if we're in crisis, maybe we think it's just complex, or if we're in complex, we think it's just complicated. And a lot of times probably it's really complicated, but people think it's simple. And so responding with the with what works at a at a higher level or lower level, however you want to frame it, um, that's a, it's a perfectly natural thing, you know. And likely you moved from simple to complicated, and from yeah. complicated to complex. So it worked for a while because it was correct for that situation, and it just doesn't work anymore. And. Yeah the idea of, um, you know, getting a panel of people together and really thinking through potential solutions and looking for an expert when you're in a traffic jam, you know, your car is literally stuck in traffic, you might need to just kind of <laughs> try something else. Um, it's, it's a really powerful analogy, because again, um, it, it's happening outside of us. And there's, you can't control it, you can't, um, you can't make your situation complicated instead of complex. You really just need to um, address the complexity that's there.
1: Yeah, well said. And and I, I think I'm I'm just I'm I'm intuiting that if I'm somebody out there listening to this right now, I'm I'm thinking, okay, so this is interesting. Hopefully we people think this is interesting. The the concept of working in complexity and it, it mismat there's a mismatch from how I think but I'm also sitting there saying, "So, okay, what is it that I can do about this? Like, what? Absolutely." Really? And so, um, being a being a high performance coach coming into the into the executive coaching world from the athletic world, one of the things that I was bothered by coming in was there was there was th- there were some issues with being able to measure leadership effectiveness in a VUCA environment. Mm-hmm. So, um, the first thing that we want to do is. We actually want to have a diagnostic process, kind of like if you came to work with me as an athlete, where we would say, okay, what's the race you're trying to train for? Um, That's the first question we ask ourselves. And then we want to say, okay, what is it that, how are you doing uh, in preparing yourself for that race? How skilled are you uh, in being prepared to race the race that you're trying to run? And We've done a lot of research. I've I've been doing a lot of research over the last few years to find diagnostics that can really look at leadership effectiveness in VUCA. So the first thing we can do is we can actually pinpoint, like we would with an athlete, we can pinpoint what is it that you're already good at and what is it that you need to develop. Um, So we have like a, uh, I have something called a 3D diagnostic process that we run leaders through. Um, So the first thing is understand how good of a swimmer, biker, and runner are you now? Mm -hmm. That's the first question we have to ask ourselves. Otherwise, we're kind of grasping at what what is it that we'd want to develop. So uh, finding that and understanding that from the beginning is really important. Then the second thing is, how do we develop and sustain the new skills? How Mm -hmm. is it that we overwrite the conventional or existing hardware in the brain that wants to jump to many of the things that we talked about before, some of the more reactive tendencies in VUCA? So how do you develop and sustain that? And you do it by a constant process of action reflection. So let's say that somebody, for instance, has a a goal of becoming better at leading collaborative decision-making. So they set that goal. They learn information about that goal. Maybe they learn a new decision-making model. They go and apply that in a real situation within their team. I'm going to apply this decision-making model here. And then they reflect on their experience. They journal about it. They ask for feedback. They work with a coach and they reflect on it. That constant process of action reflection is what creates new neural pathways in the brain to think and act differently in the face of complexity. Or somebody might say, I want to work with the Kenevin framework. I'm going to bring that into a team meeting. So I'm going to learn about the framework. I'm going to bring it into the team meeting. And we're going to talk about what if, what are the issues we're dealing with as a team? we're gonna compartmentalize them into these different realms. and then we're gonna I'm gonna reflect on my experience. What was it like to teach this? What was it like to try and use it? How did the team respond to it? This con- these constant what we would call virtuous cycles of learning are a great way to develop and sustain the new VUCA skills. So if you're out there listening to this right now, my my charge to you would be find, Find out more about VUCA. You can certainly learn about it and read about it. Um, And then challenge yourself to go and try new things and really Mm -hmm. do it. Don't just read a book. Don't just listen to this podcast and walk away and say, okay, I think I understand it now. The only way that our brain truly changes, because it wants to stay the same, the only way Mm -hmm. it really changes is by repetition and reflection, kind of like when we're training a muscle.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's a very, um, it's a very actionable uh, and, and kind of uh, appropriate next step. It doesn't feel too much, you know, Uh, so often, when we start to think about all of this VUCA, right, we start, you know, it's volatile, it's uncertain, Ah, it can be, you can feel like you might need to Try too many things or, or it's too big of a problem. And so you should just, uh, again, go back to those natural comply or distance or control. And so to say, hey, try a series of actions, maybe even just one action, and then make sure that you are reflecting on it and seeing what's working and seeing what doesn't work and just training your brain over time to, to respond in better ways. And also um, what I'm hearing from you is training your team and making sure that you're bringing your team along with you um, is really essential as you um, begin to adapt to the, the VUCA environment that you're in.
1: Yes, totally.
0: Now, are there, I don't know if this is even a, a good question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, are there techniques that leaders should practice in good times, you know, in a time where maybe you're not experiencing um, the, the strong impacts of, of the VUCA environment that can help prepare them? for when their level of uncertainty is going to rise?
1: Yes. Um, I think the, there was an, uh, there's a book written by a guy named Peter Senge. He wrote something called The Fifth Discipline, which is a great leadership book if anyone's interested in reading that. It's, it really lays out many of the concepts we're talking about here. But Senge was in an interview one time where uh, he was asked, with all the research that you've done all the consulting that you've done with organizations, working through complexity, what's the single most important factor in leadership that's gonna determine whether or not you're gonna be successful working in complexity? He said, mm-hmm. without, without hesitation, that's easy. It's the self-awareness of the leader. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I work with, every, every person that I coach is required to have a meditation or mindfulness practice. And I know that's gotten a lot of buzz over the last few years. Uh, mindfulness has become quite big in the West, but I want to bring a, a performance uh, angle to this. Now, my, my mindfulness, my meditation practice has become quite spiritual as I've evolved. But in the beginning, it was really understanding that our brain wants to wander. Our mind wants to wander away from the present moment. Mm-hmm. and it wants to have everything fall into its pre-existing beliefs. So it has these beliefs about how the world works, and then it looks for data to confirm those beliefs. There are these mm-hmm. cognitive biases that we're dealing with. And when we start doing a mindfulness practice, which is simply having an object of focus and focusing on it, and every time we lose focus, noticing it and bringing it back, it's like doing a bicep curl for your brain because it is training the brain to be attentive to what's actually happening right now, not just having it be the giant prediction machine that it is. And here's why that's important in complexity. When you do that in the good times and you train yourself to be attentive to what's happening right now, when you get into complexity, rather than just looking for perspectives and ideas and data and information that confirms your story of what's happening, you are really open to you. First of all, you see those biases, you can almost step back and see yourself doing it. Mm -hmm. Then you also are intensely interested in drawing out the perspectives of people around you, finding diversity of perspective, because you know, kind of like the blind man and the elephant, you know that you're only feeling one part of the elephant Mm -hmm. and the only way to really understand and get at even a close to even close to the truth is by asking for others' perspectives. So what I say to people is whatever you're doing in whatever time you're in, whether it's stress or not stress, but I really encourage this is to have a daily practice where for start with 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. where for 10 minutes, all you do is you sit down, you choose an object, whether it's your breath or whether it's an object that you imagine in your mind or a sensation in your body, whatever it is, it's just focus on one thing. And every time you lose focus, bring it back. You are creating new neural pathways that are more attentive to what's happening now it's kind of like a um screensaver on your computer hmm. when our mind wanders it's when the screensaver comes on and in the beginning we don't really realize that we have the ability to change the settings on that screensaver so what happens if you sit there in the beginning your mind will wander and then you'll bring it back and then 5 seconds later it will wander the more you do this the more you recognize i can go into the settings and i can make the screensaver come on I I can have a a longer delay in -hmm. the screensaver coming on where my mind is wandering. There's, uh, and I'm careful about speaking in absolutes. There is nothing more powerful than being present in the moment and being able to inquire deeply into what's actually happening in the moment for a leader who's working in VUCA. There's, there's nothing more powerful than that.
0: Definitely. Um, I I think that um, that can be a summary of, of so much that we talked about uh, today, because if you can be present in the moment, you are giving yourself space um, to react intentionally, as opposed to reacting with that natural gut instinct. Um, it gives you time to um, step back and kind of analyze and really see the situation for what it is rather than what you're assuming it to be. So um, it's an incredibly powerful skill to have. And um, as you described, we have been conditioned, um, you know, through uh, just human society as well as through what we're experiencing now to not be in the moment. You know, you're in line for five minutes um, waiting, you know, to pick something up or um, you're at a store, whatever it might be. And immediately you pull out your phone because God forbid that your brain not be absorbing information um, for Mm. those five minutes. And to be able to just be present and um, truly aware of what's going on is something we've almost trained ourselves away from. And so we're going to have to put some effort to kind of developing that skill.
1: And, and have a good sense of humor about it too, because mm-hmm. the, the, the reason we do that, if you think back to our early ancestors, if our early ancestors sat around and contemplated what was happening in the present moment, they weren't going to survive for very long, right? So <laughs> they had to think about what happened yesterday. Where did I find water yesterday? How did I engage in the, in the tribe yesterday? Did that work for me? Did it not work? And then planning for the future. The ability to think about where am I going to get food, water, shelter, community, that's very natural to our, for our brains to do that. So it's almost like a pre-rational impulse to move away from our current experience. So just notice that even as you're listening to the podcast, notice how quickly the mind starts to wander to now, wait, what did I have for breakfast this morning? Or what's the meeting that I have coming up next? And, and have a sense of humor about it, that that's the mind. That's what the mind is designed to do is to jump ahead and jump backwards Mm-hmm. but you can't train it to become more attentive to what's happening now. But I really think it's important with this because you talked about the complexity and it can feel overwhelming is have a sense of humor with this, have some fun mm-hmm. with it, have realized that it's almost like the technology uh, has outpaced that the technology that we create in the world has outpaced our internal technology. So just laugh about it and say, gosh, we are, we are really in over our heads here. And we can either decide that we're gonna veg out on Netflix and just kind of say, "Well, there's nothing we can do about it," or we can realize each of us has agency to do something about it. You can change this in yourself, and it's it's not as hard as people would make it out to be. It's uh, I'm I'm a testament to it's actually quite, can be quite fun, and uh, the world has a lot more possibilities when you live this way.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think that aligns with uh, somebody that I love to read and, and listen to is Brene Brown and um, just the her focus on avoiding shame and being willing to be vulnerable. I think that ties to that sense of humor. Uh, if you start to feel um, guilt and shame over the fact that you aren't As mindful as you want to be, that you aren't as present as you want to be, that you aren't responding to the complexity of life um, as effectively as you want to be, that can become paralyzing. And so, instead, to say, you know what, it It, is—that's—it's just a fact. I'm I'm not as great as I should be. I'm not (laughs) responding in the perfect way, and I'm getting better. I'm working on it. And um, that that sense of humor, that sense of um, you know, just not not shaming and blaming yourself is really important um, yes. as we all work on addressing this massive change. I loved that timeline you shared earlier. Um, things are things are getting more complicated by the day. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, I'd love to keep talking to you, but I know we need to wind our conversation down. A question I always like to ask our guests is, what are some books that you would recommend to our listeners They could be very specifically related to this topic? Or if there's something else that you found that's, um, that's really inspirational, um, feel free to share that as well.
1: Yeah, I'm just. it's actually funny. I'm looking back at my bookshelf in my office right now because there's been a lot of books that have been read over the last several years. So um, a couple of them that I really love, uh, Immunity to Change by Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy. That's one book that I would recommend. Um, another book that I really love is Action Inquiry by William Torbert. So great book there. I mentioned The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. Um, but then I'd also take you to a, a, a maybe a little bit less traditional book, uh, The Case Against Reality by Donald Hoffman. Um, I think we need to start recognizing and understanding that what we think we're living in is quite different from what physics is telling us we're actually living in. Mm. And um, so a fascinating exploration into the almost interface that we've created uh, in the way that we see the world versus what objective reality really is. So uh, those are a few books that I would recommend.
0: Fascinating. Uh, I definitely am going to check that one out. All right, David, if you want people to learn more about you and your work, where should they go?
1: Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thank you. I appreciate the, the time and uh, the listeners. I hope you've gotten value out of it. And um, so you can find me at www.fullyintegratedleadership.com. That's the website. There's um, all kinds of information, background about my coaching, my triathlon background, my coaching philosophy. Uh, there's also links there to the podcast episodes. You mentioned the Fully Integrated Leadership podcast. And then people are welcome to reach out to me directly by email. I love to hear from people. It's david at Fully fullyintegratedleadership.com.
0: Wonderful. Well, uh, I know I learned a lot today, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. So thank you so, so much for speaking with me today, David.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth. Great to be with you.
0: And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything that David and I have been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com pod 298. Make sure to tune into the podcast next week for another amazing guest. If you enjoyed today's show, please recommend us to a friend. That's the best way to help more people discover the show. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure to do that. That way you'll hear every new episode as soon as it goes live. You can subscribe for free wherever you're listening today. We love, love, love feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or email us with questions, feedback, guest suggestions at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook and check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling!